Lord, we thank you for today. We are here to draw upon your grace and your love. We know that our blessings are not meant to stay with us, but they are meant to be spread out to our community. We ask that you would use this time to encourage us, uplift us, so that we can continue the work that your son began. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning. Um, for those who don't know or are visiting with us, my name is Michelle McKeska, um, and I am subbing in for Mike Skinner, who is our lead pastor. He is off in Orlando, Florida, in the happiest place on earth, so I'm told, out on vacation, uh, suffering for Jesus while, while we are sweating here. So uh, I, I find it very convenient that he is gone the first week our AC went out. That's a little suspicious, you know. Uh, I, don't, I can't prove anything, but it's, it's highly suspicious, but no matter. Uh, so I imagine that we have some very excited teachers and students in the room right now. Yes, okay. Very excited because summer break has started, right? Yes, which um, being a former teacher, that uh, doesn't mean much to me now since I'm no longer teaching. Um, but what it does now change for me are my coffee shops because they're now ruined and overcrowded with teenagers at 10 a.m. in the morning just right when I like to go, because nobody's there. Nope, no longer. The introvert struggle is real. I thank you for your support. It's all right. I just have to, I'm gonna have to go a little bit further, a little bit further. But happy summer to everyone. Um, you are feeling it, especially this morning. So we, we did that on purpose, right? We just wanted you to feel the warmth and the change of the season. Uh, not really, no, not really at all. But um, summer should evoke some images in your mind, maybe uh, splash pads for your kids. This is the new thing. It's no longer like you go to a pool, you now go to a splash pad, right? Um, or maybe shaved ice stands are starting to open, right, that were closed. Um, of course, shaved ice, not snow cones, right? We know that it's shaved ice only. Uh, maybe family barbecues are starting to happen for people that go outside purposely during this time. I don't know. Um, Maybe you just cook it really quickly and then come back in. That's Texas barbecue. Um, but each season, particularly, uh, will come and carry with it certain traditions and certain expectations. And our church calendar is no different. So we are actually in a season in our church calendar. I didn't grow up knowing much about the church calendar. I didn't even know that one existed. So this was kind of new for me. Um, so the season that we are in right now is right after Pentecost, and it's called Ordinary Time. I know, it's a little bit of a letdown. Like, the season that we're in right now is called Ordinary. Okay, I'm going to nerd out a little bit and explain what that means. So, Ordinary actually doesn't mean common, okay? Ordinary comes from the root ordinal, which means counted, okay? So, essentially, what this season is are the counted weeks between Pentecost and Advent. 
Okay, so the number of weeks, and this is the largest portion of time, the largest season, the longest season. Okay, um, so Advent, Easter, Pentecost, all of those seasons are meant to celebrate events that happened in the history of Christianity, the birth of Christ, his death, resurrection, and the advent of the Spirit. Ordinary time, the focus of that season is on the mission of the church. What do we now do in the meantime? So this morning, um, our text is actually coming from the lectionary, which again, the lectionary would be the uh, predetermined readings of scripture. So they give Old and New Testament scriptures um, for every week for the church to read, which means that right now, across all the churches of the globe, thousands of churches are reading the text that we're going to read this morning, which I think is pretty cool, because you're probably going to come up with a thousand different kinds of sermons, right? Um, So the lectionary provides this unity within the diversity of God's people. It's a way for us to realize that the church, capital C, is bigger than we think, which has always been encouraging for me since I didn't grow up in a liturgical style of a church. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to open up to this lectionary reading, which is 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there is a black hardback in the chair in front of you. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 5 through 12. And I'll give you guys time to jump over there. So I have been hanging out with my sister. She is getting her master's in speech pathology, which means that she is now finally done with school. So I've been able to hang out with her and my nephew, who is two, and he's adorable. Okay, I'm, I'm not just biased because I'm the aunt. He's adorable, like objectively. Um, so we've been hanging out, and uh, because she is getting her master's in speech pathology, she's kind of our unofficial speech expert. Before that, she also taught special education specifically to four- and five-year-olds. So she's also kind of an early childhood development expert. So we're always asking her questions, right? Um, Particularly my cousins who have kids. So my cousin, um, her two-year-old, the pediatrician just pointed out that he's a little behind in his speech. Like he needs to have more words than he he has. Um, And so she's, you know, mom's now worried. Um, and she talks to my sister and says, hey, can you, you know, we're going to be in Houston. Can you observe him and see, maybe give us some pointers. So they're working with him, and they're using one of his favorite toys, which is a ball, to kind of engage him. (coughs) And they ask him, the grandparents, who are the ones working with him, what I think is a very logical question. They hold up the ball, and they say, what is this? That makes sense. Why wouldn't you ask that question if you want the kid to figure out what it is? Problem is the kids too, right? So he doesn't say anything. He just reaches out for it, and then they give him the ball. And so after this session, my sister is like, okay, so I have, a, I have a couple pointers, a couple ways that you can adjust what you're doing that will get you more success. So the first thing to know is that language is modeling. So instead of, if you ask the question, what is this, all you're going to get your child to do is ask the question, what is this, to everything, right? You're not going to actually teach them the names of things, okay? 
So instead, she took the, the same ball. was like, okay, so what you need to do is say, where is the ball? Let the kid point to it. Don't give him the ball yet, right? And then say immediately, can you say ball? They're modeling your language. And then as soon as they say that word, give them the ball. <coughs> so um, I thought this was basic bribery, right? Like this is reward behavior 101, whatever I learned in psych a really long time ago. And um, you know, you, you hold out the reward until they do what you want and then you give the kid the ball. But she said, no, it actually goes deeper than that. She said, what you're trying to teach the child is the power of their speech. You're trying to, you know, it it's goes back to the use your words. You are trying to communicate the more you know, the more you can communicate with me, the more that you can achieve. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, she's not just teaching speech. She's teaching this little two-year-old and his family about empowerment. And that is amazing. Just in an interaction with where's the ball? Like she's teaching this kid that he has the power, right? So that also happens to be what we're talking about this morning, is empowerment. All right, so 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And as I've been out of practice of teaching, I'm not used to preaching this long. So my voice is, is shot. I apologize. <clears throat> so we're going to start in verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death, for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Okay, so I need to give you a little background on what's going on here in Corinth. So all of Paul's letters are essentially like listening to a phone conversation where you only hear one side, right? You are trying to piece together the other side of the conversation with a context you don't have. So the church in Corinth has written Paul a letter previously to this with a whole bunch of questions. And this 2 Corinthians is his response. And what we learn from Paul's response are a couple of things. One, Paul has started this church. He has built it. And two, they have problems. They have serious problems, okay? Um, Gone is the myth that the early church had it all figured out and didn't have any problems. No, nope, just read Corinthians. They, uh, they were figuring it out, okay? So what was happening in this specific situation is that Paul, after he has established this church, there's a group of traveling preachers that essentially follow his trail, and they go to every church that he sets up. And then they start 
teaching different stuff. And they start questioning Paul's authority by saying, are you sure this guy is legitimate? Do, is he really an apostle? Did he see the resurrected Jesus? Is he really sharing the gospel? So they sow these seeds of doubt and just completely mess up this church that Paul has spent years cultivating, being persecuted, sharing the gospel with, right? All of his hard work, these guys just kind of swoop in and mess everything up. So 2 Corinthians, to give you kind of the historical background, is all about Paul defending his ministry and defending his apostleship. So we're going back here to these jars of clay, um, to speaking about his authority. He's very quick to say that his authority is from God and that his power is actually in his weakness. So he gives the defense, but it's kind of like the anti-defense. He kind of is a master of irony. And 2 Corinthians is full of this. So let's go back to verse 7. The question that we're asking this morning is what does it mean for you and I to be empowered? As the church, as the body of Christ, what does it mean for you and I to be empowered? So the first thing that we learn is where this power comes from. So let's reread verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So the source of Paul's power is God through Jesus, right? He is saying this to defend his ministry, but this has truth for us as well. And I want to give us a little word of caution on this verse 7, because it has been interpreted in a couple of harmful ways that I want to clear up. Um, so Paul is talking about his, the source of his power. That's the context. This passage has been interpreted to say that we do not have value, right? That we, our bodies, our humanity, are just these jars of clay. And the real treasure is only what God gives us, okay? That is a misinterpretation of this text. It's not what it's saying. Instead, he is highlighting that at the heart of God's power, there is a paradox. And we need to back up to verse 6 to see what this paradox means for us. So in verse 6, it says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So verse 6 here is a reference to the creation story in Genesis. Um, when God said, in the beginning, when there's nothing but darkness and watery chaos, he speaks and light exists. I want you to imagine, just for a moment, the kind of power that can speak worlds into existence. They can speak universes into existence. Just think about that kind of power, okay? And here is the paradox. This power, power to create life itself, is somehow contained within humanity. So the jars of clay are not about our worth or value. The metaphor here is to highlight how frail we are that we are these fragile, vulnerable creatures 
who nevertheless contain the power of life itself. So Friday was a bit of a whirlwind for Zach and I, and um, I, I have a little bit of ADD, a little bit. Um, it's not been officially diagnosed, but I swear I have it. Um, and so we got home, and there's tons of things going on, and we both forget to close the garage door. We just do. Uh, and so I'm asleep, dead to the world, and I wake up the next morning, and the garage door is open, the door is unlocked. It's kind of like, welcome in, come on in, anybody who wants to come into the house. Maybe sleep on her couch, take a couple of things, maybe murder us in our sleep, I don't know. Um, you know, and so I was just sitting there thinking, wow, that's, that's a reminder of how vulnerable I am as a human being. And really the garage door is not some like fortified shield, right? Like all of a sudden, if I've got the garage door now that nobody can get me, I'm, I'm safe. I've locked the door, you know, where no one can, if someone wants to, right? Someone can break it. Where there's a will, there's a way. Uh, we only have to look, we're coming up on almost the year anniversary of Hurricane Harvey, right? We're in a moment. We know that our possessions and our lives can be gone. This is how vulnerable we are. This is how finite we are, right? It doesn't speak to our value. It's just, it's just a reality, right? We are fragile creatures. But somehow, for some reason... God has decided to contain his power within us. So the first thing that we learn about what it means to be empowered is that God himself is our source of power and that this power is somehow contained in us. So what else can we learn from this text? The second thing that we learn about this power is that it is familiar with suffering. So let's look back at verse 8. And as we go through that again, I want you to keep the image of that fragile jar of clay in your mind as we're reading these afflictions. So starting in verse 8 again, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. So imagine a fragile jar of clay being dropped, hit, scratched, and somehow it's miraculously being held together. This is the image that Paul wants us to see, specifically in his afflictions. He's afflicted but not crushed. He's struck down but not destroyed. Paul acknowledges that a life of following Christ will not be easy. It will be filled with doubt, but this doubt doesn't lead to despair. It will be filled with perhaps even persecution, but it doesn't mean we've been abandoned. The power of God, for some reason, does not always protect us from harm. But Christians who have suffered throughout the centuries have always held this radical idea in tension, that while the world may be filled with death, injustice, and brutality, these things will not get the final say in our world. Martin Luther King Jr. once said that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. I think it takes a tremendous amount of strength 
and hope to be able to look at our world and to believe in and even to work for a better future. Being a cynic is easy, right? Being a social justice warrior only on social media is easy. Jesus calls us to a third way, one that is filled with both sacrifice and reward, where somehow both death and life are manifest in our bodies. This is why baptism is our symbol. Our journey with Christ is filled with deaths and resurrections. For the martyrs, this meant physical death at the hands of their persecutors. And I can think of no better evidence of God's paradoxical power than these martyrs who simply through the words of their testimony and refusal to fight back display this amazing love and power of God. Revelation 12, 11 says of the martyrs that they've conquered through the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Um, so I don't know if you guys have been keeping up with the news, but there has been a televangelist who has been making some headlines and I'm looking out to see if anybody, I've got some spots, so we know what this is about. Okay, so there is apparently a famous televangelist who has spent this entire past week talking about how it is God's will for you and I and anybody listening to his sermon to send him money for his fourth private jet. I can't make this stuff up. So he already has three private jets, but he needs number four so that, you know, he can make a nonstop flight because those layovers, it's just terrible. So, is, so he has, on his televised show, he gives an entire sermon about why he needs his fourth private jet. Okay, And the reasons are ludicrous, so of course I'm going to tell you what those are. <laughs> so um, here's, here's the one, uh, the, one of my favorites. He needs the private jet so that he can be closer to God while he prays. You know, because God's in the sky. It's cool. Um, the co so second reason uh, is that commercial airlines are, are crowded. The, according to him, they're, they're filled with demons. That's how he refers to the other people on the plane. Demons. We're, you know. I mean, I know flying is not a pleasant experience, but demons, really? Um, so he's just crowded. He's so famous, everybody comes up to him and talks to him. So again, inhibiting his prayers, right? This is what it's all about, is the praying. Um, and then, right, the last reason is that the private jet gives him freedom to stand in the aisle and raise his hands, right? It's like, you can't do that on a commercial flight. You can't get, I was like, can you not get out in the aisle? What kind of experience have you had on a commercial airline? You could go to the bathroom, you know? Like, they let you get up. Um, but apparently, it, it inhibits some of his freedom, okay? So he gives this whole thing. And y'all, he, he has three planes, which means that he has convinced people to give him money three times before. This is crazy to me. Now... I would not call myself an expert in the faith here, but I think we can all agree that what it means to be empowered through Christ does not look like having four private jets, right? So here is, this is for free, right? This is a, a good way to be able to tell if someone is just kind of full of it, all right? If it is self-serving, 
or dehumanizing, it is not of Jesus. Self-serving or dehumanizing is not of Jesus. Okay? So we know what empowerment does not look like. Let's quickly recap what we've learned from our text. So we've learned that the source of power is from God, paradoxically within us through his spirit. And it is a power that is familiar with, but not defeated by suffering. So the last thing I want to highlight about this power is going to require us to flip over to the Gospels. Okay? Um, So if you will, turn with me to Luke 10. Luke 10, verse 38. You're probably familiar with this story. Indeed, it is one of my favorites. It is also up there in my top pet peeves of how people interpret it. So we're going to get into that. Okay. So Luke 10, verse 38, the story of Mary and Martha. Very familiar story. Okay. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary. Now, if you are a highlighter or an underliner, underline this next phrase. Who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Okay. So here's my spiel. This story has been used from the dawn of time. Okay. To categorize women into two groups. Are you a Mary or are you a Martha? Neither? I don't know. Are women really in two categories? Also, they say, whenever they're teaching this story, you know, be honest. Be honest if you're a Mary or a Martha. It's okay if you're a Martha, but you really want to be a Mary, right? So you're kind of like cheating on the quiz. This is in in my growing up experience because you want to be the Mary. And then, right, somehow we punish women who seem to be servant and detail-oriented. Like, really? We don't need these skills in the church? from both women and men? Is this somehow problematic? Okay, so I've gone on my rant and pet peeve. This is not what this text is about. It has been grossly misapplied, okay? So the clue, the hint here, is in what I told you to underline. So back in uh, verse 39, we see that Martha is not upset about Mary neglecting her serving duties. Mary has committed a very big social faux pas. Astronomical, okay? And Martha is trying her best to get Mary out of the room before there is an incident. So, what's going on? The language of sitting at the feet of Jesus does not simply mean being eager to learn. This is a specific phrase used in first century Judaism, and it is talking about an honored place of learning. 
that is only reserved for the disciples of the rabbi. Mary is not allowed to be there. She's not allowed. Okay? So women could listen to a rabbi if he's teaching at a house in the back of the room. That was okay. But this, sitting at the feet of the rabbi, is a metaphor for the place of honor. This is saying, I want to be a disciple of this rabbi. So Mary, she's not oblivious, okay? She is purposefully defying the rules. This is Rosa Parks refusing to give up her seat, right? This is what Mary is doing. She says, I understand the, the cultural rules here. I don't care. I'm going to sit and I am going to learn and be discipled by the rabbi Jesus. Now here, this makes Jesus' response so much more significant because Jesus understands the cultural rules too. He knows what she's asking by sitting at his feet. She's asking to be his disciple. And what does he say? He says, this will not be taken away from her. This privileged position, this ability to be my disciple will not be taken away. He's aware of the cultural norms being broken. He just doesn't care about them. Whoops. Sorry, y'all. So here's the last thing that we learn about power. God's power defies man-made barriers and boundaries. It justifies them. So if you don't hear anything else this morning, please hear this. No one can take our access or cut it off from the power and love of God. It cannot be taken away from you. No one can cut off our access from the power and love of God. Just as it also can't be enhanced by a private jet, right? Our wealth, our status, our gender has no bearing on the, our relationship with Christ. From the beginning, this is how God's power has worked. Right in Genesis 1, he creates the world, and then he creates humans and says, here you go. Why don't you take this power that I have, right, and rule over creation? And y'all, it doesn't go well, right? The next few chapters, we totally screw it up. You'd think maybe we shouldn't get this power, but God continues to do this. He continues to share his power. Again, we look to baptism. This, again, reinforces this universality. So the previous sign of our covenant was circumcision, which kind of leaves the whole gender out, right? Also the Gentiles. But baptism is for everyone. You just need water. So one of my favorite um, musicians, they're a husband and wife duo, and they came out with a song about the birth of their second daughter. Uh, her name's Lucy. So everything is smooth about the pregnancy. Um, they, everything is going great. They, before this second pregnancy, however, they went through a series of infertility and had a miscarriage. Um, for those of you that know the song that we sing, Beautiful Things, that's the, what that song is about. 
of that season of infertility and losing a child. Um, so everything's looking good. They're pregnant again. What could go wrong? Until the day of delivery. So they find out that their baby girl has not one but two heart defects, and she also has Down syndrome. And they said this truth hits them like a train, that they immediately felt like they had lost a child, the child in their mind, who they thought their child would be, and then immediately feel completely guilty about having that thought, right? But then Lucy was born. And after the heart surgeries, they finally get to hold their baby girl. And they have an older daughter named Amelie. And she was three years old at the time. And they describe the moment that she comes into the room, the hospital room, to hold her sister. And they hadn't told her anything. Um, and the mom gives Lucy to Amelie. She's letting her hold her. And she says she's just holding her breath. Right? She's thinking in her mind, my daughter doesn't know. My daughter doesn't know that she's different. My daughter doesn't know that her relationship with her sister is going to be different. And she looks at her daughter and she notices that she's just staring intently at Lucy. She can tell she's thinking. And she says, Amelie, what are you thinking? And she just looks at her palm and with this huge smile on her face, and says, she's exactly what I thought she was going to be. Right? The name Lucy means light. And they named her this because they realized they were the blind ones. That Lucy, their daughter, was this beautiful gift of light, of life, and joy. And that their daughter was right. That Amelie was right. And that she's able to bring this joy in a completely unique way because of her Down syndrome. Our society tends to look at people with special needs with pity or sadness. Unaware of the gift, the insight, and the joy they bring to the lives around them. They too bear the image of God, are filled with his love, and given power through his spirit. As Paul said in our previous text, the light that shines in the darkness now shines in our hearts so that we can look in the world in a different way. God's kingdom is filled with Marys and Lucys who help us open our eyes and break down our barriers. The power that spoke worlds into being is within us, speaking words of new life and resurrection. We need to learn the power of our speech, the power of our testimony. It is not a power free from suffering, but it is a power that can never be taken away. So what does empowerment look like? When you give up power, you gain it. When you sacrifice your life, you find it. It breaks our traditions, our cultural norms, and it's available to all. It shouldn't really surprise us that God's power works this way. For we follow Jesus, who showed his power and love through his sacrificial death on the cross, as we're about to celebrate here with communion. So as you go about your week, enjoying the summer break in air conditioning, hopefully, 
I hope that you will meditate on this truth, that you are a beloved child of God who brings him joy, that the power to create worlds and life out of death, God's very spirit is within you. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for the power and the gift of your Son, the grace that is poured upon us, that the power to create worlds, the power to create life out of death, resides within us. Help us to remember this when we feel hopeless, when we feel powerless, when we are overcome with despair. Remind us that we are your children, deeply loved, and that we bring you joy. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen.